Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week we're sharing a special conversation with Laura Dern, who joined us as part of our recent day-long celebration of her ongoing contribution to screen acting. The event featured screenings of Alexander Payne's Citizen Ruth, David Lynch's Wild at Heart, and Joyce Chopra's Smooth Talk. It concluded with an onstage discussion led by the Film Society of Lincoln Center's Director of Programming, Dennis Lim. The conversation traced Dern's illustrious career, with a focus on her recent triumphs, like Certain Women, Star Wars The Last Jedi, Big Little Lies, and Twin Peaks The Return. Let's go now to their conversation. Good evening. Uh, My name is Dennis Lim. I'm the director of programming here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, and I am very pleased to welcome you all to this very special evening with Laura Dern. Um, That clip, of course, was from one of Laura's first films, David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Um, And I think it's it's one of the great scenes um, in in cinema history. Um, Also a scene that I think in its layered complexity really says so much about why David Lynch is a great filmmaker and why Laura Dern has been for so long now one of our great actresses. For more than 30 years, she has created some of the most complicated and memorable characters that American cinema has ever seen, and recently American television as well. Um, Earlier today, we screened three very different films that together demonstrate her range and her remarkable evolution as an actor. Joyce Chopra's Smooth Talk from 1986, David Lynch's Wild at Heart from 1990, and Alexander Payne's Citizen Ruth from 1996. In, I think some people were here earlier today. I was just telling Laura that December 14th is now officially Laura Dern Day. So we can, uh, in, uh, in, in tonight's conversation, we will keep the focus mainly on Laura's recent work. It's been, um, I'm sure, as, as you all know, a very busy and fruitful couple of years for her. Uh, some people have called it um, a kind of renaissance. But I think if you look back at her body of work, it really is an incredible career. Um, very diverse roles, but very consistent um, in her appetite for risk and her ability to surprise. I don't think there's an actress working today who has made such bold choices over such a sustained period and who has moved so fluidly between blockbusters and art films. Her body of work really speaks for itself. Her collaborators amount to a who's who of recent and contemporary American cinema. David Lynch, Alexander Payne, as I mentioned, but also Robert Altman, Steven Spielberg, Paul Thomas Anderson, Kelly Reichardt, Clint Eastwood, Peter Bogdanovich. She is a two-time Academy Award nominee. She has won multiple Golden Globes. She most recently won an Emmy for Big Little Lies and has also been nominated for a Golden Globe and a Screen Actors Guild Award for that role. She is, in short, the kind of actress who elevates everything she's in. Um, her mere presence instantly makes a film more unpredictable, more complicated, more alive. Um, It's always a delight to see her on the big screen or the small screen, and it is a real thrill and honor to have her here with us tonight. So please join me in welcoming Laura Dern. Hi, everyone. So happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you've been on this crazy... Uh, press tour for this little film that you made called Star Wars I know it's so important we've been doing press so that we can let everyone know it's coming out tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) without without this push first screenings are happening in in a couple of hours and I think some people might be going directly to to, to those screenings from here. Um, you've, let's just start with, let, maybe let's start with The Last Jedi 
um, since you've been talking about it for weeks. Okay. Yes. Uh, all right. Slower. Slower. Okay. We take direction. That's what we're here to talk about. All right. <laughs> Whether or not we actually have ability to take direction. We'll try. She's probably better at it. She's probably better at it than I am. Um, but so okay, the film finally opens today, um, and you've been doing a lot of press, but also it's a very spoiler-sensitive community, the Star Wars fans. So you've been kind of talking around it. Um, and I think a lot of people here still haven't seen it, so probably don't want to know too much about it. But what can you say about your role, Vice Admiral Haldo? I can say how lucky I am to have found David Lynch at 17, because when I first met him and had to do press for him differently than other directors, uh, preceding that, he said, your job is to tell them nothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, it was a seamless transition into a Star Wars movie. Um, yes, guys, spoil alert, I have purple hair in the movie. And that is all I will tell you. <laughs> no, I'll say a little bit more. Um, one of my favorite memories of talking to a filmmaker was I was asked to lunch by Ryan Johnson, yes, at a hotel. I won't get into that. Um, but it was very appropriate lunch. <laughs> but I was like, you know, you can't ask people to lunch at a hotel anymore. Um, so <laughs> Ryan has learned that. But, um, but it was a public lunch, and he said, at the lunch, um, I had seen his film Looper, which I thought was quite brilliant, and he was a very interesting independent filmmaker, and he had written a role that he was interested in talking to me about, um, and had thought of, of me as he was writing, which was a great compliment. He described the role as complicated, um, powerful, woman in a position of power uh, in which there's a deep gray area, um, mm -hmm. whether she is light or dark, and um, what her real uh, moral compass is. I was like, oh, this sounds like my kind of part. Um, and he said, you know, in this world, like Star Wars, that will, I said, well, that's so interesting, like imagining this kind of contained film sort of in that world, you mean sort of like space, meaning it's, it's boundaryless? And he goes, no, 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 it is Star Wars. <laughs> Which, because no one had told me that he was making Star Wars yet, because it was such a secret. So uh, <laughs> I then said, you didn't have to tell me what the part was. I have loved Star Wars since I was seven years old, and I'm in. Um, but what I loved particularly since our conversation is around character and, and um, storytelling in, in the way you beautifully described, and I'll aspire to, uh, is that in the considering what she should look like, uh, Ryan is so brilliant and subversive in, in a really beautiful way, as you'll see when you see the film, um, that it was really important to him that we create a very feminine leader and what that might do to everyone around her. So um, so the purple hair, the, outfit, the space jewelry, yeah, yeah. the very beautiful dress. Did you get to work with him and with the costume designers on the I logo? did. Yeah. Michael, Kathy Kennedy was very involved, and Rom, who's Ryan's producing partner since they started an independent film. And everyone weighed in, but I love the idea that this 
position of power, this female powerful leader is immediately throws people off because she comes in looking like a woman mm -hmm. and not like one of the boys is, is an interesting consideration. So yeah. it's a great starting place in space. I don't want to give anything away, but I will say that there's, um, you have a really wonderful and poignant scene with um, the late Carrie Fisher can talk a little bit about we don't want to say anything about the scene but about working with her on what would be her last film uh, she's incredible and you know as much as you might try to attempt in your art whatever that may be in your life um, certainly in in the case of being an actor to um, let go of the veil um, and try to be your most authentic self. There is no greater teacher than Carrie. And, you know, reflecting on this last year, Wonder Woman being one of the films that people were in awe of a complicated, dynamic female superhero, mm -hmm. to think back on the mid-70s that Carrie Fisher gave us a complicated, sassy, brazen, angry, uh, beautiful female superhero is just remarkable and um, having been around her what was incredible is she leads um, with an unapologetic self and that is who she presented uh, to the world uh, in her own complications as a person in her writing she was extraordinary so regardless of what you think is honest the minute Carrie enters the room, she requires that level from all of you, and uh, it changes the entire space that you're in. Yeah. It's very beautiful. I feel privileged to have been with her. I, I did say that we would focus on the, the recent work, but I do have to ask you about Blue Velvet, um, because obviously it was a break a breakout film for you. You had already been in, I think, Peter Bogdanovich's Mask before that, um, and you had a small role in Foxes, but this was you know, a big role, and um, you know we keep saying the word complicated, but that scene is so uh, rich in its layers, um, and I'm just wondering if you remember what it was like to, I guess, first of all, what it was like to meet David for the first time, and then also to do a scene like that this combination of, you know, you really sell those lines, which are not easy to sell, <laughs> the thing about, the, you know, all the Robins, and, and there's this combination of um, extreme sincerity um, and a sort of heightened, over-the-top kind of absurdity in David's work often, and I feel like you really, you and Kyle are really, like, on that line. One of my favorite memories around Blue Velvet was uh, it went to Telluride, um, to premiere, and uh, Kyle and I sat with David in the back of the theater to watch the movie. And once you dive in with David, you hopefully know going in, and that's why he chose you, but you certainly learn his sensibility quite quickly, and his brilliance, and his beauty, and his simplicity um, in what he wants. And I remember moments that were so poignant to him people laughing mm -hmm. and him being struck that they were laughing and the most horrifying moments or insane absurd moments he was like 
a giddy child who was like on a ride at Disneyland. And he was like, why is no one laughing? And I thought, I have to work with this man for the rest of my life. Um, because, you know, he was looking for his tribe when he started making art and, and he's found us. Um, those of us who, who need that kind of storytelling so desperately. Um, but it is honest and simple and totally off kilter and the ultimate dive into the shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, while what is sort of Pollyanna is um, David holds equally true. Yeah. Right. Uh, he's genuine and it's insane yeah. <laughs> at the same time, um, which really interests me. Mm-hmm. And so I feel very lucky. Another one of your early films we showed earlier today, which is Smooth Talk by jo- Joyce Chopra. And, you know, it, I was just looking at your filmography and it was really this this pattern of interesting choices and risky choices starts from the very beginning. I mean, you were a teenager when you made those films. You were, what, 17 Eight. Uh, 15 at Smooth Talk. 15 for Smooth yeah. Talk and 17, 17 for a Blue Velvet. And, you know, if you look at a typical teen actor in the 80s, you're making John Hughes movies or something, you know, and, but you were really taking risks at a young age. And, I'm, you know, is that about having parents who were in the industry? Was it about just what you were drawn to? I mean, maybe I'm weird. <laughs> um, that I, I remember how lucky I was for all the auditions that I went on and didn't get, you know, that I got, that Joyce wanted me to be in Smooth Talk, that I got a film with Peter Bogdanovich at 15 and Joyce and, and then of course David. Um, you know, so I don't know if, if there's really good luck or, or destiny or, um, feeling where I'd come from, but I definitely, you know, now I have the good fortune of choosing differently. But in terms of um, the fabric of of how the roles began or found me, uh, they were very aligned to the kinds of films my parents raised me on, the kinds of sets I was on as a child. Um, And that's where I just got so lucky because it just so happened that the way I learned about acting was watching my parents with some of our greatest filmmakers and my experience of being on a movie, um, most deeply remembering at seven, which was a critical turning point (laughs) for me, believe it or not, I spent my summer vacation. My dad was on a movie and my mom was on a movie and I went back and forth with them for the summer because I started to become really interested in film. And my dad was working with Hitchcock and my mom was working with Scorsese. And at the end of that summer, I was like, I think I want to do this. And it wasn't that hard. Like They were having amazing conversations and it was messy and raw and everybody was in it together and it was collaborative. The food was good. You know, the old days. <laughs> Even craft service was interesting. Um, and... Um, And that's what acting was. It was this incredible divine space where characters were super flawed. And, you know, my dad was killing John Wayne and people would come up to him and be like, that's so awesome. You killed John Wayne. I was, that's so interesting that they like him, even though he did this horrible thing. So all of that was uh, a great defining moment for what I dreamed of 
um, Hal Ashby. Sure. Uh, the year after that, that my dad was working with. So um, I think I just prayed hard that I'd get picked by people like that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I really did for the yeah. most part, which was um, extraordinary. That was your first on-screen appearance, right, in the Scorsese film, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. You were, you were the seven-year-old girl seven-year-old at the girl, <laughs> girl eating girl, ice yeah, cream. Girl eating ice <laughs> yes. cream is your first uh, screen credit. Um, and the Hitchcock film was his last film, right, Family Plot? So as a child, you were, because, you know, those, those of us who've been on film sets, they can be pretty boring places, very repetitive work, you know, like a lot of waiting. You were not bored as a child. You were completely no. taken with. So yeah. taken. And now I have two children and my son just cannot wait to get out of there. He has <laughs> no idea what anybody's doing. He has such disinterest and he's an artist, but not. Not in that way. And my daughter, who just turned 13, just can't get enough. It's the most interesting place. And so I see myself in her, that feeling of just never wanting to leave. Mm -hmm. So, so fascinating. Do you see your daughter getting into the family business? Did your parents, how did your parents feel about it when you told them at seven? My mother thought it was a horrible idea. Um, and said, you know, Laura, for every 30 parts that a man is going to get, there's one part for a woman. Um, and, um, and look around, there ain't one woman on the crew. Why would you want to be here? And she was right. Um, but we're changing that. Um, so, uh, yeah, they were very protective. My dad as well. Um, but I led them to have no choice. I was determined. Um, so I'm gonna, we're gonna move on to um, the present, um, and I wanna talk to you a little bit about your work in television. Um, but before that, we're gonna show a couple of clips. Uh, one, they're very brief clips. Uh, one is from Enlightened, a show that you created with uh, Mike White. Um, and the other one is um, Big Little Eyes um, from earlier this year. So, all right, so we'll roll the clips. So they're very different roles. <laughs> um, w- let's start with Enlightened, because this was the first time, I think, that you actually had a character that, you know, you had mostly worked in film, but to have a character that you created with Mike and then to live with this character over a period of time. Can you say a bit about that process? Yes. I love Amy Jellico. Um So I loved living with her. Uh, and I had worked on the uh, HBO film Recount, um, playing Secretary of State Catherine Harris, the delight that she is. <laughs> and um, we were all considering um, the 2000 election. You know, the old days when they could like steal an election. And so we learned from that. And um, <laughs> good thing we made that movie so we would never repeat. Um, <laughs> hanging chads. Um, <laughs> but um, oh, it was such an innocent time. Um, but uh, when we were working on it and even doing press, I talked to Richard Plepler of HBO and said, you know, I have this character that I'm rabid about. Network is one of the most influential films of my life. And 
there's so much cultural apathy. Where is everyone? Why aren't we marching in the streets? If we feel they stole an election, where is everybody? Um, preceding changing history with an iPhone. Um, it was a very frustrating time for all of us. And I said, you know, what if, you know, that rage we could, we could do something with? And I would, I would love to comment on perhaps a character whose um, rage makes a shit show of her life, but in fact she would be the one person who might be a whistleblower. And um, very generously they were into this idea. In fact, I pitched it to them as like, guys, don't you want to do this show? What if Lucille Ball became Norma Ray? And they looked at me like I was insane, but then let us explore this. And Mike very brilliantly wrote the most beautiful yeah. television. And um, the amazing thing about it was we did it at a time that it felt, this character felt so flawed to so many people watching it. And uh, they were a bit appalled by her, and the reaction was um, shocking um, from some people. And I feel like now most of us are Amy Jellico, so I, I'm just so grateful to have played a character that now I see everywhere I look. <laughs> yes, definitely ahead of its time. Um, it's obviously a, a show that even though HBO canceled it after two seasons, it does have its obsessive fans, and I'm sure p do people keep still ask you and Mike White about about whether there will be a continuation of of Amy's story and in what form, and you know, I think maybe even today might have you know this is f only four years ago, five years yeah. ago, but I think maybe in the current television landscape there might have been uh, another possibility for this to continue. Yes, and 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 you know, getting into the minutia of the new model of television, but it was still a time where Nielsen ratings were defining television. And even though people weren't watching live television anymore, so we were competing with numbers and things that aren't looked at now with streaming, et cetera. Um, and so we just, we, we missed a moment and in fact were canceled. And I think two days later Time Magazine called it, um, their favorite art of the year, and it became this very beloved thing that people caught up with, and that's beautiful. But we're only sad because we only imagined one more season of that arc. It was sort of, to us, maybe one more. So perhaps Amy Jellica will live again one day. We'll see. You mentioned the character's sort of rage as a, as a key starting point. I think the other interesting thing about Enlightened is the way it deals with spirituality as something that it takes seriously, but also approaches with a sense of humor, which I think is quite an unusual thing to not just be purely satirical about it, but to take the spiritual quest seriously. And talk about why that was important for you and, and Mike. Well, it was very important to both of us, but uh, this is a great tribute to Mike uh, as a writer. To, to find irreverence in something that is really, uh, probably the most difficult area I've ever worked in. You can play around with sexuality and politics and heartbreak, but man, you get into the spiritual and people are like, okay, let's just not, there's nothing adorable or dark and hilarious about this. And he found a way. And as you and I were speaking about before we came in, um, the most remarkable thing, which wasn't common as we started five years ago in television, was um, the journeymen on the road with us were 
the most amazing directors. And so trying to find this tone and navigate how to do it with the genius of our beloved Jonathan Demme, with Todd Haynes, with Nicole Holliff Center, uh, Miguel Arteta, and Mike. I mean, this were, these were the directors that were helping us find this tone. And David Michaud, right. you know, some extraordinary people. And, yeah. I, and we couldn't have done it without each of them sort of keeping this really true place yeah. of irreverence and brokenness. The other great pleasure of Enlightened is watching you and your mother. Um, you've had, you know, you've been in quite a few films together. Uh, Rambling Rose, Wild at Heart, of course, who could forget that mother-daughter relationship. Um, <laughs> and um, But it's really beautiful and enlightened. I think in some ways she's, you know, playing against type. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really beautiful to see that relationship sustained over the course of a, a season, two season long arc. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm, what a gift to get to work with my mom and as well, Rambling Rose, we've had several experiences working together, which has been incredible. Uh, my son, who's a beautiful photographer, had to do a, a project in and around um, an album cover. And he was like, I got this crazy idea, Mom, that it, it's this singer, and he's like, he's in this space in a bathroom, and I'm thinking maybe he would like literally take a red lipstick and like paint his face with it. <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, DNA is real. I said, you know, <laughs> Ellery, not quite yet, but one day you might see your Nana do something like that. He said, Grandma never did that. And I was like, oh my God. Um, <laughs> his sweet little grandma. <laughs> Were you surprised to see how well she fit into David's world? Because you not had already. At all. No. <laughs> <laughs> not for one second. <laughs> um, no, my childhood has been entertaining. <laughs> um, they're literally two peas in a pod. Um, my grandma included, my mother's mother, who raised me while my parents worked, who's a sweet, little, beautiful Catholic lady from Alabama. And she came to the premiere of Wild at Heart, and she sat between me and David. And when the film ended, with a lot of trepidation, needless to say. I mean, very Catholic, and I was raised in Catholic school. My grandma turned to David, put her arm around him, and she goes, that film was so cute. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, and you know Nick sounds just like Elvis. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we're an interesting tribe of ladies. <laughs> and you've never had the opportunity to work with your father, right? You've never been in the same film with, with him? Well, yeah. I was... Um, you don't really see it, but I was a person walking down the street at the end of Nebraska, uh, and and I think someone I love very much yes, might be in the audience uh, tonight. Um, I'll call out Jim Taylor a little later, but I know he may be here, who co-wrote Citizen Ruth and is a total genius. Um, and Jim knows the story that we thought, you know, let's do a little Ruth Stoops homage inside Nebraska. And so my dad's driving the truck and I got to walk down the street and at least we kind of stared at each other and then I did a dumpster dive looking, I'm sure, for more spray paint to get high on or something. <laughs> Which if I was gonna be in a movie with my dad, that would be a favorite moment. But I, my dream has always been to do a Western with my dad because yeah. it's so how I grew up knowing 
out this enormous, iconic part of him. So let's talk about Big Little Lies and um, and the very unique Renata Renata Klein. Um, uh, also, again, uh, kind of a tough character, um, tough in many ways. Uh, and what drew her? What drew you to her as she was written? And and what were the challenges of of playing her? Jean-Marc Vallée. Who you uh, worked with on Wild previously. Yes, so. who's just an extraordinary filmmaker, and uh, I trust him implicitly. Um, and so he and Yves Belanger, the DP, the same producers, Reese Witherspoon and I had done Wild and literally went into Big Little Lies after that. Um, so I was ready to follow whatever the character. Um, but I'm super interested in um, seemingly unlikable people. <laughs> I, I find them terribly interesting. And, um, and she's pretty unlikable in, in most ways. Um, but her ferocity in motherhood is deeply uh, relatable and commendable. And so that was the driving force to sort of get inside her. Um, and working with any other actresses, let alone five strong female characters at the center of something was amazing. Yeah. Um, so those were the things that were most exciting about it. But Jean-Marc works in a very fluid and amazing mm -hmm. way. Um, and so there's a lot of room to play and improvise and, um, you know, rage is super interesting to him. And um, he's quite gender blind, so mm. he treats all characters equally. Um, and that's a gorgeous place to work in. Yeah. I wanted to, you know, maybe f figure out a way to talk to you a little bit about your process and how you, how you create characters. And, uh, and I think Renata might be an interesting one to talk about. You talk about how you're drawn to seemingly unlikable characters. Um, what is that, you know, what's the challenge then? You know, there's a, there's, it seems like um, this attempt for you uh, on your part to understand them seems like a very sort of generous impulse um and how do you how do you actually do it um and d d you know i know you studied acting what was the particular school of acting that you come from i know your parents were like big method actors and i don't know if that was also your training um and do you research much when you do a role so you know i'm just would love to hear a bit more about how these characters come together for you well i will answer your question uh, but I like to start by saying that there is a special acting secret that only a few of us hold. There may be one or two out here who know what I'm speaking of, and I can't, I can't divulge the secret. It involves numbers, and it's very particular, and when we meet each other, we hold on to each other for dear life. Um, so I won't divulge our secret. Um, but those who have it often retire at a very young age. <laughs> no, uh, but um, I, I think uh, within that secret holds a, a reminder to hopefully not take any of it too seriously um, and not talk about acting too much. But, um, and in fact, I've rarely talked to my parents about acting. So uh, I think I was lucky that way. Um, but what they do talk about, and my godmother was Shelley Winters, who I admired so deeply and was such an influence on me as well. Um, 
was that there was a rawness to everyone I knew um, and a mess um, to the actors that I was raised around um, that they led with and they led with um, with pride and availability and um, discomfort and ease and that really interested me. Um, those are the people I like. Um, I like to have dinner with, so why not have that as a job? That seemed pretty amazing. Um, and within that, yes, both my parents were at the Actors Studio and studied with Lee Strasberg, um, and I studied with several teachers in childhood that were amazing, but then right after Blue Velvet, when I was 18, I found uh, Sandra Seacat, my teacher who has remained my teacher my whole life, um, who also came out of the Actors Studio, but is, um, you know, super interested in considering, like, why us? Like, why, why are we looking at this story and what, what is it that's relatable for us? And um, there's always something to learn from each other, just like there is from a character that shows up in your life. Um, and I don't know, the more complicated, the better, uh, the more heartbreaking, the more I want it to be hopefully incredibly uncomfortably funny. Mm -hmm. um, I, I find sad things kind of hilarious and funny things super heartbreaking. So um, I, I am very lucky that I found my family who seem to have the same sensibility. Like Jim Taylor who's here in the audience. <laughs> and there's going to be a second season, um, a Big Little Lies, which I think people are very excited about. Um, do you know anything about it? And I feel like people keep on asking you to reveal things that you probably don't. don't yes, I know things. Know, but yes, okay. <laughs> we can leave it there. <laughs> Terribly interesting answer. <laughs> And David Kelly is brilliant, yeah. and he's at work mining, mining, all kinds of fun stuff, I think. Excellent. Um, okay, we're going to move on to some of your recent film work um, and show a couple of clips um, from Kelly Reichardt's Certain Women, which we showed here at the New York Film Festival last year. Um, it's a really beautiful film, um, and a film that was at Sundance um, earlier this year, um, Wilson. Um, with, uh, in which you have, uh, I think, a really great dynamic with uh, Woody Harrelson. So we'll show a couple of clips from these films and, and then chat a bit more. You talked about this all-female ensemble of, of Big Little Lies, and Certain Women is also um, an all-female ensemble film, very different in its structure and very different in its, its tone. I mean, I really love that scene because I feel like it's it says so much without all that much being said, which seems to be a key to Kelly Reichardt's work. There's um, a certain, you know, very effective minimalism, um, but so much is about what's left unsaid or what's just below the surface. And um, I was wondering if you could talk about working with, with Kelly on this, a film like this, where you have two other stories happening parallel, separate, but kind of related in an oblique way. It was remarkable uh, and a great discipline for me. <laughs> from day one. Um, the film opens uh, with my lover and I in bed together and um, as he started to put his clothes on I reached my foot out to rub his back and she was like, you don't need to do that. You don't have to do anything. 
I was like, well, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm just feeling his back. She's like, yeah, you don't, you don't have to do that. I was like, what? <laughs> it was, everything is so pure. Every moment it has stillness in it and she's not looking for the narrative to be explained on any level. Um, and I've played a number of people who feel things in an enormous way. Yes. And um, that was a little uncomfortable for me um and uh particularly my character of the three women in the story um everything is incredibly restrained and so I'm really grateful to her because it taught me a lot that um I sense have uh probably not succeeded in but really tried to take with me in the last year and a half since I worked with her um in which you know while looking at R2-D2, I try, try to have some restraint and not be like, holy shit, you're R2-D2, um, which I think was probably better for the movie. Although we tried one like that. Um, and, uh, um, and she's, you know, she's an extraordinary painter. Everything is, is so beautiful. And so as you're in it and trying to understand it, you know, she'll give you a Milton Avery reference um, versus another scene from a film. And, um, and I like when references are elusive, so right. you can kind of grab onto them without explanation. They're just there for you. Um, when a filmmaker or a costumer or a cinematographer gives you that as an actor, um, maybe it's just because if they don't, <laughs> get specific, you haven't done it wrong. <laughs> I, I like that too. It's like, well, they never said what they really wanted, so I guess I'm doing okay. Um, <laughs> but, but I do, I, I like her, the vagary of her mm-hmm. specifics. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really beautiful. And um, Michelle Williams and Kristen Stewart being the other actresses who are just beautiful and that the through line is, is incredibly subtle, yeah. um, but you also feel it in, in their heartbreak or their disconnect. Um, and then I did another film this summer with Kristen Stewart, and she's amazing to work with. And this a is super the, JT, brave the JT Leroy film, right? Yeah. In which you play Laura Albert? Yeah. Yes. Great. Can't wait to see that one. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, about Wilson um, uh, as well. I remember reading you know, interviews with you when the film was at Sundance, and you talked about just how you thought this was a really relevant film. And the thing you kept saying was that you really wanted people to see this film now. And uh, can you explain a little bit what you meant by that? Uh, well, not unsimilar to the topic of Amy Jellicoe in Enlightened, uh, he is boiling over with his contempt Wilson for the way the world looks, which is a place of total disconnect where everybody's on devices and nobody's communicating um, or loving fiercely or allowing it to be complicated. And from that came the comedy of it. And um, so I loved that. And the sensibility, can I say this, Jim, I think? Say yes if you agree. Okay, um, Alexander Payne had, um, had developed this film for a period of time, and I knew the story from him based on a Daniel Klaus graphic right. novel, and his world is extraordinary and banal and hilarious. Um, and so 
all of those things were were a world that I really loved and understood and felt we needed to see more of. Um, and I loved the idea of the deepest love story you can imagine, um, where it's just not a good idea for these people to be together. And they will forever be the love of each other's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's That was really interesting to me. Um, and particularly exciting because it was a reunion for those who saw Wild at Heart and the clip from Blue Velvet with Fred Elms, the same cinematographer, oh, great Fred Elms. who I haven't worked with, um, but known forever, but hadn't worked with since Wild at Heart. And he's just extraordinary. So that was a, a great, delicious treat. And Woody's brilliant and bold and nutty and hilarious and we spent a summer in Minneapolis playing these crazy people and it was just amazing. You seemed very in sync like the two of you yes. in terms of your performances. And we had done a play uh, uh, that Jim Brooks directed tw- 20 years ago I okay. think which was the exact amount of time that they hadn't seen each other and came back together in the story um, so it was a very funny dynamic. I'm struck by something you said of when you're talking about certain women about having to adapt to you know Kelly's sort of more minimalist approach. Do you find that that's something you have to do often in terms of you know shifting? I'm sure. I mean, obviously, given the versatility of your roles, there's always a lot of change, shifting and adjusting. But really big changes based on who you're sharing a scene with, who th- who's behind the camera. You know, like uh, do you find somebody who's been working for 30 years that you must have things you like to do, ways you like to prepare and all that, but how often do you have to make big changes? Uh, Before I answer that, I just want to make sure you guys are good. I I mean, (laughs) I don't want this to start to get boring at some point. You know that awareness where you're like on the date and you're thinking, shit, I am really talking too much about myself right now. That's the point. We need to switch this (laughs) up. I want to know about you. Um, (laughs) But I really do. So whenever you guys are ready to share some stories with me, I'm really happy to hear that. We will do that. I don't need to make this all about myself. But anyway, what do I do when I (laughs) go from movie to movie? I'm, it's really interesting, you guys. Um, I do, um, it is different every time, and, and it's home rarely, but every once in a while. Um, it's why if you get to work with David Lynch your whole life, you just, you feel safe, or Alexander and Jim, or, you know, you find your family and you want to stick to it. I would have loved the blessing of, of also being with Robert Altman my whole life, Jonathan Demme. Um, but there are few that, I don't know, I think you get each other in a very specific kind of way where there needs no language. That's just the best. Um, but with that said, there are filmmakers who know exactly what they want and it's the greatest inspiration in the world. And Paul Thomas Anderson knows exactly what he wants and he's meticulous and an insane, you know, inventor like nothing you've ever seen and that's also extraordinary but it just its own different you know energy um and uh yeah so i don't know that actors change what they do but maybe they pretend to listen differently (laughs) i know exactly what you mean i guess i'm gonna do the same thing because i don't know what he's talking about no um (laughs) um but uh, you know, David is just so particular because he knows me so well and he only gives one word directions. 
So, I mean, he would kill me if I tried to have a conversation about the character. <laughs> He's like, I need wind. I need bubble gum. And that's pretty much our relationship. Well, I think this is a good moment to show um, a brief clip from Twin Peaks, The Return. And, uh, oh. I like that you didn't give away what happens no, next. No, we would not have continued that scene past that point. Something very important happens, but we will not talk about it. Well, <laughs> it's just um, that clip is the personification of um, what it's like as an actor to work yeah. with David Lynch because, uh, first of all, just, there's nothing more beautiful or intimate to arrive ready to do a scene, and he puts headphones on my ears and plays the most disturbing, slowed down American woman by Jimi Hendrix. That's the craziest thing I'd ever heard. And I was in that space and uh, this, a decision is made, or has to be made by Diane, and the gun is involved in that decision. And um, it's a climactic point of the series to David. And I hadn't been working with David in a while. I'd been working on other movies with amazing people. But <laughs> I'm like, okay, so um, we'll you know, do a quick shot of me. You see the thing, the purse, and then, and then what? I'm gonna knock on the door and then there's monologue. He's like, what the hell is wrong with you? We have to see you make the decision. And I was like, yeah, okay, well, I'll try to do that, you know, in a little something moment. <laughs> like, hmm, oh, yeah, okay, and then I knock. He's like, no, we're gonna go with you while you make the decision. I was like, we are? <laughs> He's like, yes. And I said, oh, you, so you're gonna see me walking down the hall a bit before I knock, which, an amazing filmmaker would do and give the actor that kind of time. No. We're gonna leave the bar, we're gonna get into the elevator, we're gonna go up the elevator and walk down the hall so you have the time to really make that decision. I was like, oh my God, I worship you. And impatience for an audience is not involved in this, guys, so sorry. But as an actor, you're getting to make the decision. You're getting to explore those feelings. You don't know if he'll cut it all, or in this case, use it all. Um, but um, I just, I, in the process of working, that's an incredible idea. Um, and something, I, I remember being struck by, this is gonna sound like a joke, but it honestly isn't. As a kid, I fell in love with The Andy Griffith Show, which I think is very important art, because at the end of every episode, we had these two men sitting out on this porch, and for two minutes of, what, 24-minute comedy television in the 60s? Andy would look at Barney, he, one of them would be probably playing a banjo, and Andy would go, yep. And Barney would go, yep. 
And that was the end of every episode. And they'd take so much time with it. And I remember as a kid going like, wow, those people are giving humanity to the experience of storytelling. That fascinated me. And so I, I don't know. I had this very amazing opportunity for someone who would make a three-hour and 16-minute experimental movie of me walking down hallways called Inland Empire. So I found my, <laughs> I found my director. <laughs> I, think, I think you put it beautifully. I mean, I think what The Return does with, with time is, is quite incredible. Um, but that wasn't evident on the page. It sounds like it wasn't necessarily evident on the page. I didn't How much see of a script? lot of pages. Okay. <laughs> How much of the script um, were you given? Or I just was your definitely scenes? given my section. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I think other than David and Mark Frost, I think Kyle may have been the only person who read everything. So did you discover it uh, along with everybody else over the summer, watching it week to week? I did. I mean, yeah. I, was, I was lucky to... There were a few storylines which David showed me some scenes early on. Um and watched some filming of a few uh, specific things um, and had friends who were musicians who did some of the pieces right. in it. So I got to be around a lot of it and know where it was going, but the specifics of scripted pages, there was so much I didn't know until, like everybody else, I was watching it unfold. So what was your take on it? Uh, I think that David Lynch is um, our bravest artist working. And um, like everything I've ever had the privilege of being part of, it can take a decade for people to catch up and have um, deep gratitude for it. But if we're looking for the boundary breaker and someone who is exploring cinema and sound and music um, and character uh, and fine art into this medium, um, with not only zero boundary, but zero consideration for if it's gonna work, is there an audience for it? Will it be seen? How do we present it? He's just in it. And I, I'm so grateful to get to work around someone like that because it's very easy for all of us, myself deeply included, in getting caught up in everything else. Um, but he comes from the purest place and he learns every day and he wants to push himself every day and he makes art all day long. Yep. He's making furniture. I made an ashtray. I'm like, that's great, David. Um, you know, but every day he's, he's making something. And what about you creating the look of, of Diane? Because Diane obviously is this, um, your character in Twin Peaks, um, is a disembodied present she doesn't she just doesn't even exist as a voice in the original series so there's a lot of there was a lot of anticipation and people found out that you know there was a lot of guess a lot of guessing about whether you would play diane and and when of course she has an amazing entrance um and she has a series of amazing outfits um and you can talk a little bit about that uh that process which i, I gather you had something to do with that yeah we just i mean this is the most fun part of us together and um, Patricia Norris, who designed Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart, who was extraordinary as a costume designer, a deep production designer, art director. I mean, she came um, and stepped into all those places and before she passed was um, 
like Jack Fisk, um, a deepest collaborator of David's. And she started me on the uh, belief system of the actor being deeply part of choosing color and costume. And so when it came to this, we were already very much um, in that kind of partnership. So it was like, okay, you're going to go buy your clothes. And this is what they're going to, I need Chinese silk. I want turquoise, Bakelite, cigarettes, and you're going to say fuck a lot. You know, like it started there. I was like, I've got it. Um, so the shopping spree began and, um, you know, the nails, something, every color, all colors. Got it. Um, maybe a jewel in one finger. Got it. Um, but it's the greatest way to work in the world. I mean, it's just uh, incredible. Um, and he, I think he had so much fun. I don't know why, but no one has asked me to say fuck you more in anything, but I think I say it in every scene um, for those who haven't seen Twin Peaks. And he sent me a meme, um, which just made me laugh so much. He's like, you're gonna love this. And it's um, Time Magazine. And it's Diane sitting in the red room in a chair just like this on the cover of Time. And it says, person of the year. And underneath it, it says, fuck you, Time. <laughs> um, which made both of us laugh a lot. Um, but how he thought of this sort of most resentful person and the crudest woman who is also the muse to Agent Cooper uh, and the only tender place for Cooper, uh, I thought was fascinating. Yeah. Loved it. He was also dealing with serious trauma, as we find out, which is also something that recurs in a lot of David's work and was, I think, defined your character in Inland Empire um, as well. Um, I'm just wondering, when you work with a director who is as you know, relatively non-communicative like, like David, do you find other ways of grounding you know, the character, other ways of, of, of explaining things to yourself, or are you just so in tune with, with him that it, it, you, you, know, you, you know what he wants, you, you, you know what the part needs? I mean, honestly, every director I've loved likes dinner. You just go to dinner and it all happens. Like, that's the great gift. You have dinner, you have a glass of wine, you have coffee together, and you start mining. Yeah. And that is the place that everything grows. I, I, I think I'm, I don't know, um, if people were basing talent on auditions or rehearsals, I would not work. I really would, I don't think I would get work as an actor, because I don't know how to, figure it out that way. So I've just, I guess I've, I've failed upward in finding directors who don't require me to like show what I'm gonna do. Um, I like being in the discovery process until we're in it. And, um, and again, that's sort of the elusive nature of film and it's also the, the way the directors yeah. worked that my parents worked with when I was a kid. So I just love that. Um, and it feels safer and um, more interesting. Um, I guess you can't do that on stage. Hmm. <laughs> I'll have to, <laughs> I've got a lot to learn. Well, shall we take a few questions from the audience? Um, I think we, do we have microphones? 
Yes. Okay. So uh, we can't really see from up here because of the lights. But if you want to raise your hand, but you guys and, look amazing. And <laughs> if you raise your hand, uh, an usher will come to you with a microphone. Hi. Uh, thank you for coming and speaking with us. I wanted to ask you about the difference between working with David at 17 versus working with him in this sort of new format of the Twin Peaks, The Return, and just what that was like, if there was a lot of changes, if more of it stayed the same. Um, yeah, just, if you could speak on that, it'd be great. Uh, David is exactly the same. <laughs> he, he really is, which is incredible that he um, knows exactly what he's creating. Um, he's ferocious about the vision and incredibly delightful to everyone um, and respectful and creates like the greatest work environment possible. Um, the difference would be in my knowing how much he trusts me. And that's like an incredible gift. Um, when you feel it from a parent, it's the most amazing feeling. Um, only paralleled to my experience with David, really, to, to um, you know, to be raised in a world where um, more than being objectified, being characterized as one quality, um, certainly is, is common, as we know, but also for an actress, terrifically common. And um, David gave me this role in Blue Velvet, and then I saw a lot of Girl Next Door parts and some beautiful parts, and um, that's what I was now. And for David to say, you know, the only sex goddess that can play this thing in Wilder Heart is you. I was like, really? You know, that, that is how he saw me then. And the only fucked up homeless woman um, that's insane <laughs> and a nightmare <laughs> that comes to me in my worst dreams is you. Um, so <laughs> every time he surprises me with how he sees me um, and, and I'm more trusting that to him, I'm all women. That's like incredible. I mean, you wish that from, I hope, a lover, uh, your deepest friend, your director, um, that you're, you're seen as everything and there's no judgment. Yeah. And that's how he comes to, I think, the actors he knows so well, certainly in the case of myself and Kyle. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a gorgeous gift. So I think I've, changed in um, maybe feeling confident with him that if he sees it in me, then I have to get out of my own way because I am that for him. And that's like an amazing experience. And the question of trust, it goes both ways too. I mean, what you did for him, for Inland Empire, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's to take a leap of faith like that to sign on to a film that's gonna be made over three years that has no script, that is being made up as, as you go. I think that was also, I uh, an indication of your your mutual, I think. Uh. Well, I would say no, except a memory did come to mind <laughs> um, of being at Hollywood and Vine at about three o'clock in the morning, 
and um, wanting me to lay on my belly uh, on the stars, um, face down, and uh, in a really traumatized state. Um, and actually, Jim and Alexander asked me to do this in a prison cell in Omaha as well. Um, both times um, really interesting when I had to turn to these gentlemen and be like, I smell urine. And, um, <laughs> and um, these guys actually brought in bleach and a, a mop. I think David's quote was, stop complaining. But um, <laughs> um, so yes, yes, there has been trust. And he did my makeup on Inland Empire, which involved tempera paint only. He, he also did the, um, his, I love his, um, the Oscar campaign. He tried to get off the ground for you. He brought a cow to a street corner and there was this big sign that said, for your consideration, Laura Dern. That was also, I think. <laughs> Amazing. <GMs. laughs> so. All right, more audience questions. Um, I think I see hands in the front, but okay. Hi, uh, oh, hi, Ms. Dern. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for coming tonight. Um, very cliche answer, but your first film of mine was Jurassic Park and um, it's just pretty surreal having you here, uh, part of my childhood. but. Um, one of the things you've talked about tonight is um, a lot of the characters that you've chosen to play are strong female characters, and really Dr. Sattler is a strong female character. Um, so I just wanted, um, and you've talked a lot about this um, in the media recently, what do you see as your role um, in the intersection between feminism and an artist, and what are your aspirations for both yourself in that sense and uh, for the industry at such a, you know, uh, a crossroads? Wow, uh, a question, uh, you know, that we're giving more thought to than ever, which is exciting. Um, so, um, I was raised by women who never used the term feminist because they uh, saw themselves as actors. Um, and there was no difference between them and the boys. Um, my mother and Shelley, Jenna Rollins, Maureen Stapleton. Um, they were extraordinary to get to grow up around. And um, I remember them talking once about Charles Lawton and um, Shelley going, yeah, that would have been an interesting part for me. And I was like, she's seen Charles Lawton in a movie and going, I should have played that. And that really struck me that that lack of separation um, was beautiful. And um, in terms of what we're looking at now, um, I think for men and women, culturally, our greatest opportunity perhaps beyond harassment and assault um, as shockingly prevalent as it has always been and is being um, focused upon uh, thanks to many brave voices who have learned that they're not alone and there are many others and for that reason have come out so um, boldly um, and freeing so many other people because of their stories but um, Beyond that, I think we're all looking at abuse of power and how there's been an erosion from zero tolerance to, again, acceptance. You know, so my daughter says, Mom, I, 
I thought you said you're not supposed to use bullying on social media. Like, how come everybody's fine with this? Like, he's tweeting every day about people. What's happening? This is crazy. Um, and from a 12-year-old's perspective, that's so interesting to me. Um, as she feels like nobody minds, because it just keeps happening. So, um, as storytellers, we get to consider what we accept and what how we're willing to use our voices. And one of the things I particularly loved uh, about the gift of Citizen Ruth, and there are many that continue in my life, um, is that Ruth wasn't just playing a character who is learning how to find her voice as a woman, characters that I have loved getting the privilege to play in this sort of feminist way. Ruth's never known she's entitled to one. She doesn't even know where to find it. She doesn't even know what that means. And I, I love her for that. Um, and it's so broken and, and beautiful. And Jim and Alexander in that script got to the crux of that question and how voice doesn't even matter in the world of um, the cause uh, and two sides and um, polarization of issues. Uh, the, the people get lost and, and forgotten. And so that's... Um, that's something profound, and I hope to continue to play characters that, that bring up that question. And now in terms of what we're looking at now, you know, we've, we've heard this terminology of 50-50 by 2020. Um, I know that I have to be as accountable as any, that when I was 11 on a movie set and men were doing my makeup and hair and men were my crew, and maybe one other girl was there saying three lines in the movie, that was the norm. And I don't accept that anymore. Um, and so um, I'm a governor of the academy and um, working very closely um, with Screen Actors Guild, uh, as well as all the unions now, to create a database that we'll all have access to, um, including the Film Center and all of us, in which um, both in the area of women at work and diversity and people of color. If you're doing a movie in Atlanta, you can go in the database and go, what second seconds are available in Atlanta that are female or a person of color? Because there have been too many movies where I accepted the answer, no, I, we'd love a female director, but like there aren't, there are three working and they're all unavailable. There are just no women DPs, Laura. They're just, you know, so that is no longer true and we can all educate ourselves so that when we ask the DGA for a DGA trainee, we ask specifically um, to support diversity on set and to, uh, to see the shift that we're all hopefully looking toward. So um, I just wanted to first thank you for, oh, I didn't know there was a mic. <laughs> I just wanted to thank you. Um, I've been a fan for about 30 years, and I've always admired your integrity and your generosity with your art, how generous you've been to the audience. Um, since you've shown so much trauma in your performances, how do you go home after work and separate yourself from it? 
because you're so happy-go-lucky, not happy-go-lucky, but you're so light and you have such good energy in interviews and you always seem so quote-unquote normal. But when you go home, how do you get away from something like Inland Empire, which like left me shell-shocked after I walked out of the theater? Um, either, <laughs> I don't know the answer to this, but either, um, you know, I have a privileged opportunity to um, get paid to go to therapy, um, which is hopefully the answer. Um, or, um, <laughs> or um, I have really good people in my life. Um, or, um, I hope it's not that I'm a good liar, um, because I, I feel happy a lot of the time, but I'm sure I'm, I'm getting a lot out. And I was raised by actors. It's enough drama already, people. <laughs> um, yeah, somebody's got to just have a good time. Um, and yeah, I think maybe the more complicated the character, the more fun I seem to have. So either I feel incredibly at home or I've gotten something out at work. All right, we can take a couple more. Um, yep. Hey, Laura. First off, love your dress. Amazing pick. Thank you. Really bedazzled. <laughs> I love fashion, I have to admit. Yeah, me too. Okay, I have a question. So um, you seem to be just game for everything. You know, you're just kind of like, hey, let's do it. So was there ever a moment in a movie where somebody asked you to do something, you were just like, nope, I don't think I want to go there. And do you remember a moment? And what did you do in a situation? And I'm an actress too, so I'm really interested in your process, your mindset, just like your, your energy, really refreshing. So oh, well, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, and... Um, yeah, I, I, I am game for anything, um, but probably in life, like on set, uh, the area that I'm not game is trying to prove my adventurer, uh, survivor self. Like, I ain't eating worms and hanging from bungee cords and hanging off the side of a cliff for a movie or in my life. It holds zero interest. I don't need to jump out of an airplane to feel like I've done that. Like, oh my God, you're turning, we're turning 30, let's go jump out of a plane. You guys are fucking insane. <laughs> I'm going to dinner in West Hollywood. I'll see you after. So, um, I don't know, but my friends think I, I'm crazier because I like to hurl myself into um, the pleasure of complicated people and characters and the mess of life and the fun of um, exploring the world and, um, I get very ferocious uh, politically and, um, you know, 
I am game for literally everything else. But I, I don't need to do stunts anymore either. A little bit. But I'll say that I did all my stunts. I did do my son stunts on Star Wars, by the way. All right. We're going to take a final question. Who has the mic? This yeah. better be great. Yeah, a really good one. <laughs> there, maybe? I, it's kind of hard to see. My, wherever the micro where's the microphone? Okay, fine. <laughs> Sorry. No pressure, I swear. Hi. Uh, Big Little Lies 2. You returning? We're doing it? Renata? Renata is... I think she might need to do it. Yes. I, I, think, I think so. Um, yeah, I have so much fun playing someone that unapologetic. Um, and I, I think David's writing is just incredible and hilarious to me. Um, so I would, I would have a blast. And they're my friends, so I love working with them. And I think they've inferred now pretty directly that there will be another seven. With, I, I believe they've even said the director. Have they? Andrea Arnold. Yeah, Andrea Arnold will be directing these. Um, should we take one more, maybe? One more, sure. if that's good. Okay, I feel bad for uh, not calling on you. I feel with bad the for you guys not hearing enough about my career, so let's stay. <laughs> All right. We can bring in some pizza. <laughs> and let's go deep. All right. Guys. Last great question. Okay, no pressure. Um, hi, thank you so much for being here with us. You kind of touched on it a lot this evening. Um, but I'd be sad if I didn't ask, what is your advice? Um, you play all these strong, you know, female characters within the story. So what's your advice for females breaking in and creating the stories, or really just anyone going into the industry? Uh, I know I respond to people writing what they know. I mean, um, in terms of my favorite writers, um, and I think that's always profoundly important. Um, and uh, I love, you know, the duality, whether it's uh, in Star Wars or in a film like Citizen Ruth, that the uh, duality inside both the characters as well as the, the plot itself uh, David Lynch, um, all the directors that I've worked with are very interested in the gray. Um, we've had enough black or white uh, for a lifetime. Um, I mean, unless it's swing time, like I'll, I'll forever watch those amazing geniuses. Um, but that's a different kind of movie. But I like that too. Um, but you know, even Preston Sturgis and Capra gave us these really complicated, even dark characters, and it was supposed to be um, a screwball comedy. Um, so I I feel like that's um, a great place to lead and uh, just lead with our authentic selves. And uh, you know what? Somebody else doesn't get it. Doesn't mean you don't have a right to your voice and you have something to say. So you just go ahead and say it. That's all I can say.
I think that's a good place to end it. Um, Laura, thank you so much for thank being with us. Thank you for this really incredible wonderful. time. And thank you for your patience. Thank you. And your beauty. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.